0: This week takes us to Conroe, Texas, where two young men decide a fun and flashy car is definitely worth killing for, and where a local lake's lore continues to grow. This is episode 63 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031. And this is a Texas true crime podcast. Welcome to our fifth annual Halloween episode. This episode was suggested by podcast listener Carrie. Carrie reached out to me a while back with a kind and uplifting email. And she also told me a little about the fact and fiction behind a local spooky spot near where she is from, which is called crater lake. After Carrie sent me her email and some links to articles and whatnot, I immediately knew I wanted to discuss Crater Lake and the fact that it has been more or less a chronic murder site and dumping ground for decades. However, I didn't want to just do a brief overview of all of the well-known crimes that occurred there. Rather, I wanted to focus on a specific case involving the lake itself with some quick discussion of the other cases, if that makes sense. So when I read that one victim in particular, Sandra Stotler, was murdered just a few days before Halloween and her name was an alliteration, I was fucking there. So picture it, Conroe, Texas, 2001. The majority of the information that I gathered about Sandra's murder was from one of the links Carrie sent me, and it was to the 2011 documentary titled Into the Abyss, created by, I guess you pronounce it Werner, because he's German. But it's spelled Werner, Werner Herzog, Werner Herzog, however you want to pronounce it. The film itself is more or less centered around the two perpetrators of the crimes committed, which were Michael Perry and Jason Burkett. There are several other interviews with family members, law enforcement and acquaintances of Michael and Jason, too. Overall, I think it is a really well done documentary. It was a little scattered when delivering the timeline. Um, but again, overall, it was very good. I highly recommend it simply for the interviews with Michael and Jason because they are just so fascinatingly terrifying. It is mildly graphic as it does show, you know, the multiple crime scenes and victims in this case when they were located, etc. But regardless, I will be sure to link it in the show notes if you want to watch it. Also, this is like, OK, I didn't. Figure this out till like later after I wrote this uh, entire episode. But um, this is like kind of the ultimate Halloween episode because the perpetrators are named Michael and Jason, like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees. You're welcome. Anyway, so um, also just to clarify, Sandra was not the only victim in this specific Crater Lake story. Also, murdered that night was her, I guess it's in the documentary, I believe it was presented as her grandson who like she adopted at around six months old and raised as her son. Uh, His name is Adam, was Adam, as well as Adam's friend, Jeremy Richardson. So anyways, let's get into the story here. I am also still recovering from that cold that I mentioned in last episode. So sorry again. I literally had to pause as soon as I said that and sneeze. So Uh, anyway, also stick around to the end of the episode. I have a small announcement, but regardless, so... 21 years ago, on the night of Wednesday, October 24th, 2001, 50-year-old nurse Sandra Stotler was baking cookies at her home in the gated neighborhood of Highland Ranch in Conroe, Texas. And just a few days later, her body would be found tangled up in her own bedding and tree branches in Conroe's infamous Crater Lake. To give some insight into who we're dealing with regarding the perpetrators in this story, Let's start with Michael James Perry. Uh, He is just a joy. Michael was born in Houston on April 9th, 1982. So he's a fucking Aries. Great start. Michael's biological mother struggled with addiction and gave him up for adoption at a very young age. His adoptive parents were caring, but, you know, they had great difficulty controlling him, as we will see. At the end of first grade, when he was eight years old, Michael Perry was diagnosed as having attention deficit disorder or as ADD, as we know today. And at the end of seventh grade, he was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder. And then at the end of eighth grade, Michael was diagnosed with conduct disorder. So essentially, antisocial personality is what he has as an adult, basically. Although he was twice admitted to a mental hospital, Michael Perry tested negative for bipolar disorder and did not qualify as learning disabled for special education classes during his youth. So he's not a fucking idiot. Um, he's smart enough. He can do school. He's just an asshole. M- you know, that's the, the professional term, obviously. <laughs> In junior high, Michael stopped going to school. Always a good choice. He ran away from home and came back when he felt like it. Another good choice. He stole his mother's jewelry and tried to pawn it, stole his parents' van and ran it into a mailbox and broke into a neighbor's home and tore the wallpaper and whittled the moldings on the wall. So off to a great youth. During this time uh, same time period of his junior high years, Michael received some counseling from psychologists and psychiatrists. Obviously, that's when he was diagnosed with those disorders. Some of the treatment was helpful, but the majority of it was not. After Michael was kicked out of more or less like an alternative boarding school for troubled teens in Florida, his parents filed charges against him for his theft and drug use, and he was ordered by court to attend a long-term facility for health care. So not a bad idea. In September of 1997, when he was 15 years old, Michael was sent to, um, I, I just cannot with this one, you guys. So he was sent to Father Flanagan's boys' town in Nebraska. Um, no offense, but that kind of just sounds like a school where Midwest country Catholics raped kids, you know? It's a bad name, bad marketing. They should they should uh, reassess if it's even still in business. Um, three months after his arrival, he threatened his house parent. Quote, you know, you people work here. I don't know why you work here. People like me are going to kill or rape your kids, you know? End quote. I mean, at least it's reassuring, if anything, like he's, he's on the right track for being there, at least. Michael was promptly sent to the locked facility at Boys Town for four months. So I'm not really sure if that's like a, you know, um, solitary confinement type thing, or if it's just like you can't roam around or interact with other kids. Uh, probably for everyone else's safety, to be honest. So anyway, uh, according to professionals, however, Michael did not have the level of depression or any DSM-4 at the time. I guess it was DSM-4 disorder to warrant the mental health care provided at the facility. Are you sure about that? You sure you just don't know what to do with him? Either way, another, you know, sad end to a group of professionals that gave up on him. Um, Michael's parents, fearing that they would still not be able to control their son, sent him to Casa by the Sea, a secured high school campus in Mexico. I mean, these people are just shoveling out money for to support this kid. And he just he's the devil incarnate. So um, Michael graduated from high school, but not from the program at Casa by the Sea, leaving on his 18th birthday in 2000. Uh, Fun fact, I actually, because I wanted to know more about this, and this was, I think, was just on their Wikipedia page, so take it for what you will, but the facility that Casa by the Sea was actually closed by Mexican government child protective authorities on September 10th, 2004, so just a few years after he left. Uh, The U.S. Consulate General's office in Tijuana reported that the concerns that, yeah, that That the concerns that led to the closure included lack of evidence that school employees possessed necessary diplomas or professional licenses, presence at the facility of expired medications for students, and unauthorized use of a pharmacy. So that's good. I mean, he's probably it's probably good that he left. It might have fucked him up more. I don't know. So except for about four to six months in the job corps, laying tile in Houston, and a month working at Walmart, Michael Perry remained jobless after leaving Casa by the Sea. Michael ended up homeless in San Diego, California for a time. Quote, I had no clue how to look after myself. I tried to get a job. I had no ID. I had no idea. I had nothing. End quote. During his time in California, an older man invited Michael off of the street to a drug-fueled party, then offered him a place to stay. Quote, basically, I became a rent boy. As embarrassing as this is, if I had the choice between starving to death on the streets or selling myself, I'm going to sell myself. End quote. So obviously he went through some, you know, pretty heavy shit in California um, on the streets. So not to to give him any points in that sense, but it happened. So there's that. Michael returned to Texas from California after his adoptive parents told him he could move back home with them if he got a job. But while he did move back to Texas, he did not take up their proposition to move back into their home. Probably lucky for them. To support himself and procure alcohol and pills, he stole and sold pills as well as other items. At 19 years old, on October 2nd, 2001, police arrested Michael for presenting a fake prescription for 100 pills of Xanax. That's a, I mean, that's like a new, not a new low, but I mean, it's just Xanax, right? I mean, I don't know how you know, readily available it was in 2001. Maybe it was, like, the new hot pill of the month. I don't know. But that's just so stupid. So fucking stupid. Anyway, evidence showed that while in the Montgomery County Jail awaiting trial for the prescription fraud, Michael was shockingly unruly. He became belligerent, he had to be restrained, and tried to bite an officer who was restraining him. So pause there to take a listen about Jason Burkett. Jason Burkett was born on July 31st, 1982. His mother used methamphetamine while she was pregnant and neglected her children, often leaving the oldest sibling to look over the family. The family lived in poor conditions and got food via food stamps. Jason's father, Delbert, the worst, the worst that's just a crime. Delbert was a career criminal who abused him and the rest of the family. as a child, Jason witnessed his father abuse his mother and witnessed him shoot her with a pellet gun and rape her on at least one occasion. The documentary um has a long part where they interview Delbert, interview Delbert, sorry. And, you know, he seems a little reformed. He's older. He's like in his 60s or something. um, Maybe a little bit younger than that. And it's fine, but like, he obviously, it, it just wasn't a good vibe. It was a horrible influence on him and his character and growing up. His father drastically altered his adolescence and teenage years for fucking sure. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Raped her on at least one occasion. So Jason, who was also physically abused by his older siblings and despite his father's abuse, Jason thought highly of him. Like he he was into his dad. He was into his siblings. He was he really kind of like looked up to his family, specifically his father. So uh, yikes. According to Jason, uh, he and Michael became acquainted with one another through the friend of a girl Jason was dating at the time. Michael was actually living in the trunk of the girl's car. Um, I don't really know how you do that. Be interesting to know. And, um, you know, why wouldn't you just choose the backseat? Like, why the trunk? I feel like there's way less light, comfort, air, you know, maybe a little more spacious, but depending on the vehicle, right? Um, so anyway, uh, Jason being the upstanding guy he was, you know, he offered Michael a place to stay in his trailer. So what a guy. The two would spend the next few months together, getting drunk and high, forging their friendship in illicit activities. 22 days after Michael's most recent arrest in October of 2001, the, uh, Xanax fraud, Sandra Stotler, Adam Stotler, and Jeremy Richardson would be dead. So while some reports and accounts kind of vary, the most consistent version of the night's events are as follows. And I realize I'm kind of like speaking fast. I don't I don't know what's happening. Um, I need to slow down because we're not that far into it. (laughs) Um, On October 24th, 2001, Michael and Jason drove to Sandra Stotler's house with a 12 gauge shotgun in a blue Chevy truck belonging to Jason's girlfriend, Kristen Willis. The boys initially approached the residence at 4019 Highland Pass, asking if Adam was available. The original plan was to go to Adam's house, which, by the way, all four of the boys, Adam, Jeremy, Michael, Jason, they were all acquaintances. So this wasn't necessarily a random attack. It was definitely targeted specifically for the vehicle in question um, that we'll get into. But it wasn't like this was a random house that they drove by and they saw the car. They knew Adam specifically. So their plan was to go to Adam, tell him that they didn't have anywhere to stay that night. And because, I mean, these guys are they're over 18, but they're homeless. Like they, they I mean, they have a trailer, but they're like they're living day by day, you know. And so they were going to see if they could stay with, you know, have a sleepover, essentially sleepover. That's not the right term. Um, stay at the Stotler's house. And at some point during the stay at the house, they would steal the Camaro, red Camaro. Actually, my babysitter growing up had this exact vehicle and my husband's, one of his friends has this exact vehicle to this day. So, um, that was the plan, right? However, when Michael and Jason came to the house that night, Sandra, Adam's, you know, grandmother slash mother or whatever, told Jason and Michael that Adam wouldn't be home until later that night around like 9 p.m., and with that, the boys returned to the truck and drove several blocks before deciding that it would just be easier to steal the car when only one person was home anyway. So what the fuck? The two 19-year-old men turned the truck around and headed back to the Stotler home. When they arrived back at the house, Jason knocked on the front door and asked to use the phone, providing the ruse that their truck wasn't starting and that they needed to call someone to help them fix the car or give them a ride, whatever. Whatever. With Sandra preoccupied with Jason at the front door, Michael then went in through the open garage and then through the back door into the house. So fucking creepy. I don't like it. He entered with the shotgun and hid in the laundry room. After Sandra let Jason inside to, you know, use the phone, if you will, Michael knocked on the back door. When Sandra went to the back door, he came out of the laundry room and shot her in her side. Sandra fell, then tried to get up and Michael shot her again. At this point, Michael and Jason wrapped Sandra's body in the bedsheets and blankets from the master bedroom and loaded her into the back of the truck. Since they couldn't find the keys to the red Camaro that was sitting in the garage, both Jason and Michael left in the truck. This is just what's crazy to me is that like The fact that the Camaro keys are are MIA is more or less the sole reason, and the open garage, I guess, is the sole reason why Adam and Jeremy are also murdered. So, yeah, it's just a fucking shitty car. I don't know. So anyway, they, um, yeah, they they don't find the keys. Obviously, they didn't really look that hard. Um, Maybe they were just trying to, you know, in the heat of the moment, get her out of the house. I don't know. They were just obviously sidetracked, by the fucking dead body in the house. So, um, anyway, uh, Jason drove he and Michael to nearby Crater Lake to dispose of Sandra's body. After arriving at Crater Lake, at first, Michael and Jason they open the tailgate of the truck and they try backing up to the lake like quickly and then like breaking really fast, hoping that you know gravity would take over and Sandra's body would you know be ejected and essentially just kind of coast into the water. But, you know, that didn't work, obviously. Um, they do find like tire tracks near the area. The the lieutenant, I believe, that was interviewed in the documentary, he even states, you know, we're not entirely certain that that was actually what happened. That might have just been something they said. Regardless, it's neither here nor there. But there were definitive, definitively proven tire tracks at that spot that matched the vehicle that they were in. So nonetheless, um, when the, you know, shoot and slide method didn't work, um, they grabbed her body and rolled her into the water near the shoreline. It's super, super spooky. The, the documentary footage that they the footage of, I guess, the police footage is very eerie. Um, they go through the house. They they show you the crime scene of the home and the whole like baking cookies thing. Like you see her kitchen. The whole house has been untouched for several days as we'll go into when they find her. It's been multiple days and they enter the home to go through it. Um, And it's just eerie. The lights are on, the TV's on, the cookies are still out, ready to be baked. The footage of, of her remains at the lake. It's at night. Of course it's fucking at night. You know what I mean? Um, Excellent whatever cinematic ad that they did there. But it's just it's awful. It's fucking terrifying. Um it's it's very dramatic. It's very upsetting. And it's very demoralizing. And um I don't know. It's just a terrible way to die and be left, you know? Obviously. All right, where I'm, you know, losing my place left and right, going off of the script. Okay, so they, you know, they, they, they roll her body into the water, as you would. They covered her body in the sheets that she was transported in, as well as, you know, sticks and brush at the lake. And they, they left the area, determined to locate the keys to the red Camaro that they had just killed for. Um, yeah, just fucking pathetic. Before that, however, Jason and Michael then drove, to you know, priorities here. They drive to pick up Jason's girlfriend, Kristen, from work. You gotta make sure she's not standing outside alone after hours here. I wonder where she worked, you know? What time would this be? What shift ends? Probably a restaurant. Anyway, Carrie, if you know, let me know. Um, So yeah, they pick her up from work and the three returned to the Stottler's gated community. No one in the trio knew the code to open the gate, um, but they knew that Adam you know, good old Adam. He would be coming home soon based on what his now, you know, fucking dead mother told Michael and Jason, and they figured he must know the gate code. This is just poor planning all the way around. What would you expect? Anyways, let's not get hung up on that. While they were waiting, they devised a last minute plan, uh, you know, to tell Adam that a friend, <laughs> so stupid, that a friend of theirs, had shot himself out in the nearby woods while they were hunting squirrels. And that since, you know, Adam lived close by, they, they needed his help. This was the ruse they were going to use to somehow obtain the code or the gate opener to, you know, get back into the neighborhood and retrieve the red Camaro. This is just stupid. Like, I don't no No, no offense to Jeremy or Adam, because like they're the victims here, obviously. But this is a fucking dumb fuck plan. You know, I don't know when you hunt squirrels time of day. Is that a thing? Is there a season or is that just what what you feel like doing when you're a piece of shit teenager? Um, also, like, why are you waiting for him to get home? Why don't you call an ambulance? Like, I don't know. There's just so many things that if you were in your right mind or if you weren't caught off guard by these meth head fucking freaks, then maybe you would have thought twice about, you know, going to help someone because the facts didn't add up. But anyway, again, neither here nor there. So anyways, soon after killing Sandra and devising this stupid fucking plan, Adam and Jeremy then arrive back at the, uh, neighborhood gate or whatever the Highlands Pass neighborhood Highlands Pass, or was that their street name? Highlands Ranch. That's what it was. I had to go back and look. Now I'm second guessing myself again. Oh my God. I'm not going to scroll back up. It's fine. So they, they get back to the neighborhood. Okay. Um, And they, they meet Adam and Jeremy. Adam is in his Azuzu, Azuzu, Azuzu rodeo. Okay. Sidebar. My world history teacher, I think like in ninth grade, she drove a turquoise Azuzu Amigo with a soft top. So it could turn from an SUV into this like mini truck. It was so sick looking back. And she was like all concerned. She had one of those, those, um, steering wheel, you know, anti-theft bars that she put on every day. And I'm like, who the fuck is going to steal this car? A smart person would have because it's a gem, but you know, again, who's going to steal it? So anyway, the guys show up, unfortunately they show up and, um, they're in the rodeo, And after Jason and Michael asked Adam and Jeremy for help assisting this, you know, unnamed friend, right? The guys and Kristen drove out to a wooded area in Kristen's truck while Adam and Jeremy followed in the Isuzu Rodeo to Lindsay Lane. I think there was a snapshot on the documentary, Lindsay spelled with a Y. So that's that's fun and normal. The four boys got out of their vehicles and walked into the woods while Kristen smartly stayed in her truck. Her life probably would have ended up completely different if she had exited. Not that she would have been murdered, but possibly implicated. Initially not having luck locating the injured friend, because obviously he wasn't there. Adam then suggested that they look for him from a different road. So he and Michael went to drive away in Adam's SUV while Jason and Jeremy stayed in the woods. Um, I don't know. According to Michael at this point, this is, you know, his version. He says that Jason shot Adam and then Jeremy. This doesn't really make too much sense since we later find out that a cigarette butt with Michael's DNA is found underneath Adam's body, as well as the fact that Adam and Jeremy were located in different areas of the woods. You know, it just it doesn't all line up. I don't really trust him and his confession that that extensively. So either way, Adam and Jeremy were both killed shortly after entering the woods that night. Um, tragedy. Michael removed the car keys and wallet from Adam's pocket and Michael and Jason returned to the truck. Kristen asked what had happened, became upset and she left in her truck. I do not blame her. Like get the fuck out. This was also, um, Shown in the documentary and I couldn't fucking remember where this when I guess this took place, but I'm just going to slip it in right here because who fucking cares. At some point, evidence showed that during the night or during the trial portion of things or in the aftermath of the murders. Michael pointed a loaded shotgun at Kristen Willis's head and said, I've already killed somebody. It's not going to hurt me to kill anyone else. So whenever he fucking said that, I'm sure it was it was scary. So but he's a piece of shit. So anyway, um, Michael and Jason would obviously leave Adam and Jeremy's bodies in the woods and proceed to head back to the Stottler home and steal the Camaro as well as Adam's rodeo. They also put, um, these, these stupid fucking stickers all over Adam's car, making it look extra lame. I don't know if it was in an attempt to, uh, it's not his, don't worry. It's the same license plate, but it has these stickers. Wow. Sorry. Um, some show my husband was watching just started blaring on the TV after it had been paused. So if you hear noise, that's what it was. Um, all right. So they put the stupid fucking stickers all over his car, et cetera, et cetera. Both vehicles are stolen. So it is believed that Adam's death was fairly quick and to the point, um, however, due to where Jeremy was located, which was incredibly far out in the woods, hidden and just generally difficult to get to. Investigators on the case believe that Jeremy ran possibly for some time while being shot at before he was finally killed. That kind of, you know comes circles back to Michael's version of, oh yeah, Jeremy just pulled out a gun and shot both of them. Bang, bang. And then we left. Like, I don't think that's really how it happened. There's some speculation that Adam was killed by Michael or Jeremy. And then Jeremy took off running or excuse me, Adam was killed by Michael or Jason. Jeremy took off running because he obviously heard the shots and then was more or less hunted down and died further out into the woods, which is awful. Um, yeah. Michael Perry would later confirm that he and Jason returned home after this. They cleaned up and went to a bar where they bragged about the new car and actually took bar employees and patrons on joyrides around town. They interview some girls and some, you know, again, acquaintances and so forth. And I mean, they seem shook, like they they are shocked that they were in the vehicle. They were terrified of the the guys themselves in the first place. Um, a very traumatizing experience to this day, I think. Even more crazy than the joyrides, is that two days after Adam, Sandra and Jeremy were murdered on October 26th, 2001, Michael attempted to evade police who had tried to stop him for traffic violations while he was driving the stolen Camaro. The high speed chase ended when Michael wrecked the Camaro. Can you fucking believe that? What a piece of shit. You're going to murder three people and then wreck the damn thing two days later. Oh, my God. Um. Yeah, he wrecked it and then he fled on foot. I don't know if it was like totaled or if he like just smashed into a wall or whatever. But regardless, what a fucking extra waste on top of the dead people that are, you know, the result. Sorry, lost my train of thought. So uh, he was eventually apprehended with Adam Stotler's wallet that he stole off of Adam's dead fucking body. Remember that? And he was booked and released on bond as Adam Stotler, which, by the way, watch the fucking documentary or look at the pictures on Instagram that I post because Michael and Adam look nothing a fucking like. I could maybe, maybe see it if he didn't have bleach blonde hair, Adam, or maybe his ID looked different. I don't know. But like what? That's just poor police work at at that point. The um, next day, around 4.30 p.m. on October 27th, 2001, Sandra Stotler's body was found in Crater Lake by a fisherman when they snagged the bedding containing Sandra's body. This discovery would lead law enforcement back to the crime scene at the Stotler's home. Michael and Jason's days were numbered because three days later on October 30th, 2001, I feel like I'm saying 2001 a lot. I think you all fucking know it's 2001. A sheriff's deputy spotted Adam Stotler's stolen car at Ronnie's truck stop in town while Michael and Jason were inside. The two boys, or men, I guess I should say, attempted to leave the truck stop after being spotted by law enforcement, and the vehicle actually struck a sheriff's deputy corporal in the course of fling. It, like, ran over his fucking leg. The officer was able to shoot out a rear tire, fucking cool, and it caused the vehicle to crash into a pretty large, like, warehouse building near the, like, side-ish parking lot of the truck stop. Again, watch the documentary, crazy video footage, insane, like, live news were there it, inside and out of the vehicles everywhere. It's very cool. Michael and Jason, whoa, shocker, fled on foot, oh, carrying the shotgun used to murder Sandra and ran inside the building. They just keep it on them at all times. You never fucking know when you need to kill someone. So, yeah, they they run inside or whatever Um they just, I don't know why they, no one wants to have, you know, have, take any responsibility for their actions these days. They're just running from law enforcement every chance they fucking get. So the two, they run inside the building. Um, They shoot out this, like, back window in the building. I, luckily, like, no one was in there. They say warehouse, but, like, the footage, again, it kind of makes it seem like it's an office building, but whatever they shoot out this back window in the building to escape and they ended up climbing this fence and ran into this nearby apartment complex you know super nightmare didn't know what they were fucking thinking anyway they were all shot several times um i think jason confirmed he was shot like in his hands his wrist his shoulder or some something like that the two were caught near the complex luckily and were finally fucking arrested Both had sustained several gunshot wounds, like I mentioned, um, during the altercation as well as like some pretty deep cuts to parts of their body from the glass, from the car crash and stuff. I, I feel like the documentary only says that Michael might have been taken to the hospital, but I mean, they were both shot. I think they probably both went. So they both go to the hospital for treatment and they go under interrogation soon thereafter. At this point, police and the Stotler family only knew of Sandra's murder. Adam and Jeremy's family just believed that they were, you know, missing at this time because it's only been a handful of days in between Sandra's murder and then this, you know, massive shootout, etc. cetera, cars getting found and things like that. However, their worst fears came true when Michael confessed to not just the murder of Sandra Stotler, but also to the murders of Adam and Jeremy, leading police to the location of their bodies in the woods near the Stotler home. Forensic evidence found near Crater Lake in the woods and at the Stotler residence matched Michael's confession. Michael confessed to authorities that he had killed Sandra Stotler on October 24th, you guessed it, 2001, but then he later recanted. So this is his profound reasoning behind his recanting, okay? He claimed to have been in jail on unrelated traffic charges at the time that the state's medical examiner pinpointed the time of death, which they claimed was October 26th, and thus could not be the killer. So yeah, the day he was in jail for the traffic offenses he was arrested for under the name and ID of Adam Stotler, like that's, that's his, they'll never suspect a connection. Oh no. Like sure. The days are off, but, um, we'll get into that later. What an idiot. He blamed his former friend and co-defendant Jason Burkett for the shooting shotgun shooting specify of Sandra, Adam and Jeremy. So he's a super fucking cool guy, obviously. After Michael and Jason were arrested and trial proceedings began, prosecutors said there was ample evidence supporting Michael's original confession and that much of the information he provided could only have come from someone involved in the killings. Quote, the time of death was not a real issue. Bill Delmore, an appellate specialist with the Montgomery County District Attorney's office, said he said the forensic evidence did not place an upper limit on how long Sandra Stotler had been dead, which went against Michael Perry's later claims during his recanting. So the date doesn't fucking matter, essentially. Everything else points to him. Let's move on to trial and sentencing stuff, shall we? To kind of simplify the cases against them, Michael and Jason were each only tried on one count of capital murder. Michael was tried for the killing of Sandra Stotler, and Jason was tried for killing Jeremy Richardson with the prosecution seeking death sentences for both of them. So don't fuck around in Texas. Jason's girlfriend, Kristen Willis, was granted complete immunity in exchange for testifying against Michael and Jason, which you kind of expected um, just so they could get a little more information. Um, So let's start with Michael Perry. At his trial, Michael claimed that police coerced the confession from him and ignored his request for a lawyer I had a gun shoved in my face. At the time, there was quite a bit of excitement. I was under the influence, my arm was hurt pretty bad, and I was real scared. My condition and my mind state was that I'm going to tell the detective anything he wants to hear to get him away from me, to get out of the situation, and that's what I did. In February 2003, Michael was found guilty of capital murder after the jury deliberated for two hours. Among the evidence was his DNA on a cigarette butt underneath one of the victims. Ironically, it wasn't connected to Sandra, but Adam, like I mentioned. Um, So I'm surprised that that evidence was allowed to be included since that had nothing really to do with Sandra's murder, but maybe they had a loophole there. The jury deliberated another six hours before deciding that Michael Perry deserved to be executed. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the conviction and sentence in December of 2004. All of his subsequent appeals in state and federal court were denied. Suck it. So Jason Burkett. Eight months later, after uh, Michael's trial, in October 2003, Jason Burkett was also found guilty of capital murder. During the sentencing phase, psychologists and family family members Testified about his dysfunctional upbringing. The defense had Jason's father, Delbert Burkett, brought from prison to testify. Delbert begged the jury to spare his son's life, saying he had been a horrible father who failed his son and his family, no fucking shit. After Delbert left the courtroom, two women broke down in tears, sealing Jason's fate. Jason Burkett would be spared execution by two votes. Recounting his father's testimony years later, Jason said it was the only time that he became emotional during the trial. Quote, "The hardest part was for him to look at me and it seemed that he was sincere, that he was really sorry for, you know, what he had done throughout my childhood. He had been in prison. I don't blame him for it, but I've seen right there that he understood that it did affect us all. I cried that one day and that was it. The whole trial, even after the conviction, the only thing that hurt me was my dad." End quote. Before his parole, Delbert Burkett was in prison across the street from his son. He had been serving a 40-year sentence for indecency with a child. Hmm. Uh, Delbert Burkett died on June 6, 2022 at the age of 66. Who cares? So um, Lisa Stotler, and I think you pronounce her hyphenated last name Baloun, B-A-L-L-O-U-N. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. So Lisa, this is Sandra's daughter. Um, in the documentary, she's probably in her thirties, um, very emotional, uh, just honestly, I keep talking about the documentary, but like go and watch it just for her interviews because a, I like her voice B. Um, she has a very traumatic past. Her family is super fucked and, um, it's, it's very upsetting, very emotional, very heart wrenching and, and, and touching all of the above. So um, she, she was not swayed by the history of Jason's childhood abuse, his neglect, drug addiction, etc. She said that she did not necessarily want Michael or Jason to be put to death. She thought the alternative life in prison with parole eligibility after 40 years. Um, so at, Texas didn't have life without parole at the time of the murder. So that's why it would be this life in prison parole eligibility after 40 years was um, she thought that was a little too lenient. And the, all the testimony proved to her was that Jason was irreparably broken is what she was quoted saying. Regardless, Jason Burkett was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Jeremy Richardson. So let's talk about Michael's execution. Okay. So Sandra's mother and her daughter and Jeremy Richardson's brother, Charles, who they interview, and he's super cute and nice and sweet. And it's, it's all fucking awful. Um, they attend Michael Perry's execution and they watched it from a viewing room. Michael Perry's mother, I'm not sure if it was his Biological or his adoptive, it didn't really specify. Watched from another viewing room. Um, his last meal, hey, he had three bacon, egg, cheese omelets, as well as three chicken enchiladas, and three of each Pepsi, Coke, and Dr. Pepper. I guess he couldn't fucking decide. Um, Michael Perry's last statement, quote, I want to start off by saying, I want everyone to know that's involved in this atrocity that they are forgiven by me, mom. I love you. I'm coming home. Dad. I'm coming home. Like great last statement. Obviously I for you're forgiven by me. Go fuck yourself. Uh, on July 1st, 2010, Michael Perry, who was 28 at the time of his execution, gasped four times before falling silent. He was pronounced dead at 617, nine minutes after the lethal injection was administered. And he was the 14th inmate to be executed in Texas that year. Um, fun fact. Okay. So this article that, that I just quoted, that whole gasping four times thing, um, the article continues stating, quote, the next execution scheduled for July 20th, 2010 is that of Derek Jackson for the September 1988 slaying of two Houston men, end quote, which I'm like, oh my God, I know Derek Jackson. He murdered Forrest Henderson and Alan Rottenberry. I covered that case uh, probably inaccurately 8 million years ago. So that's neat. Fun, fun little connection there. Quote, we can get on with our lives now and have peace, said Stotler's mother, Marianne Bockwick. Sandra Stotler's daughter, again, Lisa, said the execution day, quote, was not a good day no matter what anyone says, end quote. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I have to agree. She expressed sympathy for Michael Perry's family, but she said his last statement validated the jury's death sentence. I would totally fucking agree. Quote, I needed to look into his eyes and see if he was the monster I had made him out to be. Because he was just a nineteen-year-old kid at the time. When he said that, I knew that he was. I knew that justice had been served. End quote. That that's great. I love you, Lisa. You're the you're the coolest lady in this whole episode. Um, I mean, you're really kind of the only one because Sandra's dead. Sorry, that was kind of crass. Uh, Lisa tells her daughters, one was three years old at the time, and the other was 10 months old when Sandra was murdered, about what a wonderful woman she was and how Adam was the best uncle in the world, always reminding them that they are cherished and special. For Rosemary Jeffrey, this is Jeremy Richardson's mother. She is quoted saying that Michael Perry's death has not yet brought the closure that she seeks. Quote, it won't be over until Jason Burkett is gone, she said. Then our family can have some rest. Now, while Michael Perry was executed 12 years ago, Jason Burkett is 40 years old, living in the Polenski unit in Livingston, Texas, which I think like there are so many guys that I've covered or excuse me, murders that I've covered where the suspect perpetrator whatever is in the Polenski unit. Um, It's obviously a great place for great people. He is there serving out his sentence and will not be eligible for parole until November 1st, 2041, when he will be 59 years old. According to the documentary, again, Jason is married to a woman named Melissa <clears throat> with a Y. Um, she's fucking weird. You know, she's one of those women that um, falls in love with prisoners, you know, and that's a specific type. They're usually all normal, except for a little bit of crazy. And I mean that in the most respectful way possible. Um, She seemed nice enough. I think she sees the best in people, but I think she's also a very insecure and lonely person filling a void. Um, So he's supposedly married to this woman, Melissa. Uh, She allegedly, this is, this is the crazy part. She allegedly took Jason's sperm home with her after a prison visit and like inseminated herself and was like full on pregnant during the documentary, not full on, but she was pregnant watch the documentary, find out more. The, um, yeah, that's just weird. I applaud the effort, but it's just, it's fucking trashy. Um, he also attempted to have meth smuggled into prison in 2018. So fuck that guy. Now let's talk about the other crimes in relation to Crater Lake that I, um, promised at the beginning. So in addition to Sandra Stotler, I guess Adam and Jeremy weren't really located near there, but anyway, so in addition to Sandra, Crater Lake and its surrounding area has been host to multiple body dumps. Okay, I'm going to take the majority of this information from a Houston Chronicle article, Chronicle article um, released in 2005, confirming that there is more than crashed cars and trash floating around in the lake's waters and peripheral forested land. So to start things off. The badly charred and decaying body of Yvette King was found on Albert Moorhead Road about a mile, <clears throat> excuse me, a mile and a half from far, uh, Farm Road, FM, whatever, FM 3083 near Crater Lake. The 51 year old's body was found March 14th, less than one month after the body of Darkest Penriss was found on Crater Hill Road. Darkest Penriss was a 25 year old mother of five. Wow. I just put that together. Uh, she had been stabbed several times, and her body was dumped along the side of the road. In March 2004, the body of 23-year-old Justin Shane Pruitt was discovered in a trash dump off of Coon Massey Road. He had been also had been stabbed several times. In 1986, the body of a white male between 20 and 30 years old was found in Crater Lake. The young man had been shot two times with a small caliber handgun, Then he was weighed down with cinder blocks and thrown into the lake. He remains unidentified. Sounds kind of like a, you know, a mob, a quintessential stereotypical mob hit. And lastly, this is probably the most upsetting. I think in 1979, sorry, my voice is like going out, the body of 12-year-old Lisa Michelle Jackson was found raped and strangled in a field on FM 3083 south of Exxon Road near Crater Lake. Many in the community believe Crater Lake uh, is an unfortunate side effect of the miles of pipeline that were used to service Conroe's oil fields. So Angie Walker, director of the Heritage Museum of Montgomery County, said information about the formation of Crater Lake is included in one of the museum's galleries. So if you live in the area, go check it out. Um, she says the pipelines, they were called Mandalay Number One and Number Two. They caught fire after they were drilled. Uh, sounds safe for a while. The fire stretched 150 feet in the air and threatened Conroe's booming oil fields. Mm, yeah, I believe it. As a result of these, you know, blowouts and fires, a series of craters were formed in the area, and a couple of the craters filled with spring water. Crater Lake, the largest and deepest of the lakes, is thought to be more than 600 feet deep. Gross, gross, gross. I hate water. I hate it all. It's so nasty. Quote, old timers say they have never found the bottom, Angie Walker said. A large oil rig is believed to have sunk so far into the spring at the bottom of the crater that it could not be dug out. Many locals believe the crater is actually bottomless. Dun, dun, dun. So Crater Lake and the surrounding area could simply be a secluded local dumping spot, or it could be an old haunted oil pit of death. Either way, that is the story of the murders of Sandra Stotler, Adam Stotler, and Jeremy Richardson. Fuck you, Michael and Jason. Let's move on to questions and theories. So question number one, was it a drug-fueled nightmare crime spree? Um... You know, Michael's even quoted saying, I think in his testimony that, you know, he it was a it was a weird exciting time. He was high. He was on drugs. He was injured. So he even, you know, self-admits to it. The documentary, as well as Jason, um, in addition to Michael's statements, imply that they were both heavily influenced by alcohol and drugs during their time together and at the time of the murders. Um, However, it also seems like the guys were just like fucked up career criminals that simply wanted a fun car to drive around in. So maybe a little bit of both. I would like to know maybe like talk screens, blood work, that kind of thing to see what drugs they were taking. Obviously Xanax was a favorite of Michael's. Um, I don't know. Interesting. So my next question, um, the documentary didn't really discuss why neither of them were convicted of the murder of Adam Stotler. Why were they only sent to trial for the murders of Sandra and Jeremy? I'm sure that they like, you know, touched on it in the trial, but I didn't see any mention of it specifically in the documentary or supporting documents. Granted, I watched the documentary months ago, so I could be misremembering. Um, but it would be interesting to know how they came to that conclusion and, you know, and decision regarding their charges and trials and things like that. Um, last question. Do you think if Michael had the same sort of family testimony from his adopted father, um, like Jason did with his felon father, would he have been spared the death penalty? I think it's a possibility. I think that without Delbert's testimony and request for leniency made, uh, you know, that made a, a definite impact. And if Michael's parents or parent, whatever, gave a similar speech to the jury, I mean, if they're taking the advice of a of a man in prison for raping a kid or doing whatever the fuck to a kid they could probably take the advice of some nice people that tried to cure this kid's fucked up life. You know what I mean? I think that he could have received a lesser sentence. I don't know. I think that both crimes were just as senseless and, and brutal and selfish. So I think that with a little bit of better testimony or defense or something, um, it could have gone a different way. I'm glad it didn't. Unfortunately, I hate to say that, but yeah, Michael can go suck a big one. Um, yeah. Anyway, that is really all I have for you for our 2022 Halloween episode. Again, a big thanks to Carrie for the suggestion. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope I did it justice. I'm sure I fucking forgot something or left it out or misspoke, whatever. But nonetheless, um, thank you for listening. We were featured in an article written by Brittany Barclay for the October issue of charm magazine. It's a local magazine for the Lufkin and like Nacogdoches area, I believe. I'll leave the link to the digital article in the show notes. If anyone is interested, she just asked some basic questions about the podcast, some fun stuff about me and Cassie. It's a cute little article. Go, go take a read. Also, this is the little announcement. I am in the middle of moving (laughs) yet again. Um, I was moving to Tennessee for my husband's job, um, but that got royally fucked up. So next week. Or, I guess I'm recording this on the 20th. So, on the 28th/slash 29th, I should be back in Texas. So, um, that's great news. So, it might be a while, but I will be back with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween for real this time. <laughs>